Welcome, friends, to another episode of The Conversation, my opportunity to talk to interesting people in our community about life, both, you know, in the coronavirus and uh, outside of it, beyond it. Today, my interesting guest is Austin Bush, Dr. Austin Bush, Associate Professor of Early World Literatures at the State University of New York in Brockport here in Rochester. He did his academic work in classical and comparative literature at Indiana University after receiving his bachelor's in comparative literature at San Francisco State. He also did some teaching at Stanford uh, in the early 2000s before moving east with his family to the great city of Rochester. He's done extensive work in the study of the Bible. It's also in ancient literature, where he's published some work on the Gospel of Mark. Maybe we'll get to that. His most He most recently became the director of the Honors College after serving a few years as its associate director. He has a great mind and heart and has served as an elder at his church, that is, here at the Browncroft Community Church, regularly teaches on the Bible and key theological subjects when he has time. Austin, welcome to the conversation. Hey, thanks. So I want to start with uh, your 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 really your work your academic work just by just defining uh, what some of these terms mean for people who don't know what comparative literature is. So what what is comparative literature and what got you interested in this area of study? Comparative literature is literature of different languages and cultures. Normally when one studies literature, you study English literature, French literature, German literature, comparative literature. You study multiple different literatures. And so it involves learning um, the language and the history and the cultures of the various literary traditions you're studying and then comparing. And I got into it because um, I originally uh, thought I wanted to be a pastor. And um, in my tradition, um, I was going to um, a Pentecostal church at the time the 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 path to becoming a pastor involved going to Bible college. Um, and my pastor at the time sort of suggested that that wouldn't necessarily be uh, the right path for me. I think, um, you know, looking back on it and trying to remember those conversations, I think she sort of felt like uh, it might not be intellectually satisfying enough for me. I was mm. sort of a, you know, I like to read a whole right. lot as a kid. I, right. You know, I was doing things like that already at, at, at church in that time. And and so she said, why don't you um, get a bachelor's degree and then do seminary? It's, mm. That's another way to go. And so I did, and I had thought I was going to be a pastor in the Bay Area, San Francisco. And in, you know, the Pentecostal tradition is even even now, but, it's, but um, in the Bay Area then, um, Latin American uh, folk were a big part mm. of sort of the Pentecostal community. And mm. so a lot of churches were multilingual. Um, and our church was um, pre- predominantly African-American. It's African-American mm. Pentecostal church I was going to. But still there were um, um, tons of Latin American folk there. Mm. And um, so I wanted to learn Spanish, um, mm. but I also just loved to read. Interesting. And so comparative literature was this major where I had to learn That's a great. foreign language and mm. also got to got to read, and then you had to learn a second foreign language. And so I did Greek. And um, um, that was so I could do it in the New Testament, do New Testament Greek in mm. seminary. Mm. But then when I got really involved with university, I, you know, it just became clear 
that maybe ministry for me wouldn't look like the pastor and it wouldn't look like me being a pastor. It would look like something else. And so then I ended up going into academia, mm. um, really in consultation with um, my mentors um, uh, from from um, InterVarsity. So I think it was it was kind of providential. So let me ask you just a general question. We, yeah. There's so much we could say about ancient literature, but if someone said to you, I don't yeah. know, you're, you're someone at a dinner party or something and said, you know, uh, what can ancient texts say to us about life today? You know, uh, what would you say? Kind of, you could answer that in so many ways, just like you can answer it about what do modern texts say, right? About, you know, but um, I think they they tend to speak to a few themes, and they speak in a very sophisticated way to these themes. I mean, it's not the only ones, but they're the the themes that um, sort of come to mind now. Um, war was a real, was obviously a predominant concern in the ancient world. And it was also, you know, when you were killing people, you were killing people face to face. Usually it was a much more sort of, I, I would, it was a, in a, it was an intense experience in different ways right. from the way it is now. And so, um, maybe a more visceral experience. And so there's actually a lot of really powerful writing about war and the mm. effects of war and the psychological trauma of war and how cultures and societies deal with war. So that's something that's really powerful. Pro probably even beyond that, it's just sort of the complexity of like of human beings, the ancient world. Yeah. The ancient literature tends to demand from its readers a lot. Like you've mm. got to read really car carefully. Right. You would know this from reading the Bible. Correct. Um, it, it, it it expects readers to really engage, and um, that becomes a kind of um, a, a palette or a canvas in which the, sort of the complexity of human nature and and of human beings can really sort of be um, represented in vivid details. Like an example might be like King David, right? Mm -hmm. Isn't that? I mean, in some ways, you know, King David is like it's a story of human failures, right? Mm -hmm. It's a story of, of, you know, he's a failed father, he's a failed husband, he's in profound ways a failed leader, mm -hmm. right? But he still has occasional successes mm -hmm. and he still is a man of faith who has a kind of life, strangely, right? A lively relationship to God, even as it's a story of moral failure. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's, mm -hmm. You know, that's yeah. a really complicated thing to do. Right. And um, the writer of First, Second Samuel in the beginning of First, First Kings, I mean, that's the character that you get. Well, you know what's so interesting, and this isn't my subject or our yeah. subject for today, but it made me think while I'm talking to you about war, when you, you know, of all things, you and I didn't prepare this yeah. answer, and you mentioned war. And I was reading, and I mean, I've read like you many, many times. I read through the Bible um, every year, but I was reading through the books of Judges, and I try to read and, and, and then apply it and think, and either whether either I'm praying or thinking yeah. and asking questions. And I re-asked the question, yeah. like I get, you know, I was sort of just saying, God, this is so violent, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's different than saying there's a lot of disobedience, yeah. right? Because we know the Bible in many ways is about. Yeah covenant and and uh, grappling with obedience and disobedience walking with God but it's so violent and there's so much war and even in the opening book of judges if you remember this it says something to the effect of you know um Joshua didn't do all the all the conquering on uh, sort of on purpose because the Lord wanted the 
next generation, the mm. younger kids, to be able to um, learn warfare as well. In other words, they weren't just um, benefiting from the quote unquote labors of their parents. But I thought to myself, what? I get the principle, but how interesting. So I never thought of what you just said, that the Bible itself is an ancient text, yeah, yeah. even though we know it's, we, as, as people of faith, we believe it is, is even, you know, it has greater um, significance and, and layers of meaning and, and, and it's God's word, so to speak. But it also is an ancient text out of an ancient culture. Yeah. And a lot of it is about war. Yeah. 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 So that's it's really interesting. War, political violence, those yeah. things yeah. are really, uh, yeah, yeah, huh. yeah, yeah. And the Bible and in other texts as well. I often, when I teach, I teach um, portions of the Bible, often the David story is something that works well, but sometimes even beyond that, uh, you, you know, w scholars sometimes refer to it as the Deuteronomistic history, right? right? From um, Joshua through um, Second Kings. Um, and uh, um, th th those themes and those sort of ideas, they pair up really well against Homer's Iliad mm. or Virgil's Aeneid. Not, this isn't to say that they're saying the same thing or that they're coming to the same conclusions, but they're sort of metaphorically speaking the same language, yep. right? They're speaking to one another about the same issues and using similar language and ideas to mm. communicate. Yeah. Yeah. So switching gears a little bit about, I want to talk about not so much your, you know, your work or even your, you know, what's happening at Brown, or I mean at Brockport in, in the next few months, because I'm sure whatever you tell me today will be different tomorrow. I mean, not really, <laughs> but I mean, I know this is a moving target yeah. and it's true at, you know, the public schools and in the elementary schools right here in Penfield and everywhere else. But I wonder broad based, you know, just your thoughts. So this is, this is beyond Brockport, but how might the coronavirus um, impact higher education in general, you know, or, and maybe it won't get connected at all. I just wonder what you think about, you know, higher education beyond even 2020 or how, how might this impact higher education? We're in the middle of it now. So you almost want to ask how, what areas will remain, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, innocent of his impact. And it's hard to come up with any, mm. but, um, um, I think probably the main thing that uh, people both who work in higher education, but also people who engage with higher education as students or as parents of students would see is going to have to do with um, virtual learning, with okay. learning online. So that's a big part of it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we've all from elementary school, shockingly, right, to the to right. graduate programs, you know, have had to experiment with this in ways... Um, at a level and at a volume that really no one imagined mm. um, doing before this. And so I, I expect that that kind of um, artificial, if you mm -hmm. will, jump-starting of that yep. is going to have ramifications. And there's going to be more of that because more people have have have, have done that. My hope yeah. is that um, um, that there is maybe there is slightly more of it because the convenience it offers is a benefit. Yeah. There is a cost too. I right. mean, you can just think about it. Right. Online virtual education isn't all that different from say, you know, correspondence classes from the 70s or 80s. Remember where right. people would write in yeah. their essays and you know, they would be back mm -hmm. and forth. And no one felt that was the best way to learn. Right. I mean, you had to do it in certain situations right. and it would be convenient in others. So 
So I kind of feel online education is to some extent like that. It's it's yeah. better, but it's still not a substitute right. for massive face-to-face -face interaction. I would imagine yeah. um, that it would be more significant for undergraduate life, right? Undergraduate life, you know, I don't know, yeah. obviously it's been a while since I was an undergraduate, but um, from my, you know, people that I know, family and friends, mm -hmm. you know, undergraduate life is, you know, academia or, or the academics, I should say, are yeah. obviously just a part of undergraduate life. Yeah. And, um, you know, maybe a little less so in graduate work. Yeah. But I would imagine for grad for undergraduate life, it's, it's you know, probably like you say, we don't really know uh, because it's it's quite significant to think that we could, if necessary, permanently alter what you and I think right. of as undergraduate life. Yeah. yeah, we don't know. I mean, if we go in that direction, my hope is that there will be a realization both in in the broad public and you know it's kind of shocking to say it that I don't even think this realization has really taken hold really um, um, sort of universally at least among academics themselves among universities that an online course is an entirely different thing from a face-to-face -face course mm -hmm. and it needs to be constructed sort of from the bottom up as mm -hmm. that kind of experience. And you need to ask different questions about right. the way people learn. And- um, How you test them maybe. How you test them, right? Yeah. All this, these different things need to be sort of uh, sort of considered. And if they are, and if you come up with a really good um, you know, educational product and we can deliver that and people are learning and they're, they're, they're um, um, engaging with it in a deep way, then I think that could be really good, right? Mm. But the, obviously the problem is that that's not the way this has happened, right? This has happened where- It's well, right, no one's, it wasn't thoughtful. It wasn't, th yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. So, so, but it, it really is possible and this would be the best case scenario and it's what I'm hoping for, mm. that there are some elements that go forward okay. and um, they're high quality and people realize, wow, this is what this is. This is for me. Right. And maybe it does have a small change, but right. a lasting and significant and positive change. On Yeah, I have no um, idea if there's a, this is uh, yeah. analogous for academia, but for like the church. Yeah. yeah. Two things could be true right yeah. now. Um, one is, and this is true for me, but it's more, you know, anecdotal, that my small group, you know, there's a group of people that meet together, you know, off Sunday is actually meets more now than it did pre-COVID. In yeah. other words, we meet every week, we used to meet every other week yeah. because it's simpler. Yeah. Maybe it's a little shorter. It's obviously, we're not, you know, it's not in the same room. There's there's certain loss of uh, connection or whatever, physical connection or whatever. But the point is that's actually increased. Yeah. I would say if you if we, if we did have a little attendance thing over the last, you know, 100 days or so, you'd say, this is the best 100 days your group has ever had relative yeah. to that. And... Um, it may be true in some, at least anecdotally, some people, now it's summer's a little different, but people say, you know, I used to come twice a month. Now I come three times a month. I, that is to say, uh -huh. watching the sermon. So I wonder if um, we're not hoping that that's going to replace church. We want to get back to church, but there may be some beauty in that. I'm, you know, let's say we get back to normal life as a church, but people have you know, let's say broken through that barrier, had that experience. If it was, if you were uncomfortable with it, or thought it was, yeah. you know, not significant, or you know, not 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 sufficient, and you did it enough for these hundred days, you think, wow, I could do that. 
And I actually, you know, whether it's I'm traveling or I'm tired or I'm kind of sick or I don't want to drive or whatever, who knows? Maybe there's an equivalent in the academic world where that could actually increase people's um, engagement. I don't know. It's a, it's a great analogy. We yeah. had the same, in my small group, I hadn't even thought about it, but I think it's a precise analogy. Mm. In fact, in my small group, we had the exact same experience. Mm. We were meeting every week. Um, you know, it was more convenient also. There was less, <laughs> there's less, you know, to do everything, right. right? Shut down. And and that was a real positive, right? We stopped meeting, I think a month ago right, or six summer, weeks ago whatever, for the summer, yeah. but before that we were yep. meeting every week. On the other hand, I will say that once, First, we were just meeting and sharing and praying and talking about how our kids were going, and that was fine. But when we decided, when it had gone on enough, and we're like, okay, let's bring the Bible study back, right? Which we right. had been doing. It it never worked as well, right? Mm. That was a part, at least for for okay. my experience, and I was I tended to be the one leading it. Um, that probably needed to be rethought. Okay. Like, okay, what does it look like in this That's in good. this in this context? Yeah. Because I don't want to keep doing this again because in some ways it just it doesn't feel as satisfying as it did. Right. You know, person maybe it needs to be a little more structured. Right. I don't, you know. Right. So you but you you all found the same thing I think in church, right? Because the online church service is not just what you get when you come. Right. When That's you right. come in, right? right? And and it's certainly the case, say for the youth church service. Right. That I've attended with my with my son. Right. Entirely different. Right. Different animal. No, you right? have to bend a little bit to the medium, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. we're figuring that out. Yeah. Um, another question that I don't get to often talk to, you know, academic um, professionals like yourself, and this is something that is kind of out of the news, but not a new idea. But you may have a point of view. It's nothing to do with um, your university yeah. necessarily. This is a general question, but I've heard the question. I've heard it in the past. You know, academia largely is, um, you know, favors um, political left. In other words, I'm talking about the the echo, the, the not so much the, the the administration. Maybe that's true, but you know, faculty. Maybe it's more um, you know arts than sciences, but that they're they're um, left. And then even in these recent days, um, the, uh, you know, some of this has been talked about relative to cancel culture. Yeah. And so I just wonder if you know, for people who've heard that before, and maybe. You know, is that true, overblown? And if it is true, that is to say that academia in in America leans largely left. Um, is that even true? Is it important in your mind? Is it significant? Yeah, well, to sort of dis uh, to sort of disentangle the two things, I'd like to talk about cancel culture. Yeah, maybe, you know, okay. yeah, maybe take... somewhat separately. Yeah. but um, you know. So it obviously, you know, maybe it's not obvious, it's obvious to me. And so let me try to explain it. You even alluded to it in your in your question. To talk about academia or, you know, the university at large, it's just such a bit and it is characterized in this way. Right. It's just hard to do that because it's such a big thing and there's so many differences. Obviously, you already mentioned, right? There, you know, humanities and social sciences, and there are business schools, there's community. Right. So and then also, but beyond that, you know, they're like elite schools, which I'm not necessarily saying are better quality. I, by Maybe I should just say like research one schools, right. schools that are offering education from the freshman level to the PhD level in a variety of, of, uh, of disciplines. Um, and then there are schools like Brockport. It's a regional public school, got like seven to 8,000 students. Okay. Um, 
Um, and so, so um, we have a bunch of master's programs, but we don't have any PhD programs or, you know, we might be getting or have already gotten one doctorate in nursing, but that's still being worked out. And um, so this is sort of, um, so it's kind of complicated to say, I'll mm -hmm. just give you then my experience, yeah. okay. but you know, saying- You've heard that, this before. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. And and that's why I'm even, I even, because I hear this all the time mm -hmm. and it doesn't reflect my experience in okay. any sort of straightforward way. But I, I don't necessarily mean to say that there's no truth in it or be dismissive of the, of right. the question or the, or, or the potentially even the critique line behind the question. Right. Um, in in my experience, you know, um, even among the humanities and social science faculty and programs I work with, yeah, I would say probably the faculty members tend maybe to lean left. The only reason I really know that is the way anyone would know the political leanings of their, you know, workmates, you know, a conversation here, a conversation there, right? It's not like it's something that we're, that anyone is always talking about, frankly, we're dealing with trying to get students who oftentimes aren't as prepared for college right. as we would like them to be up and running, right? right? We're trying to help them. And especially in the social studies and the humanities, right. we're kind of fighting for resources. You know, there right. are other, th those are kind of the battles that, 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 that people are fighting. And when even there are sort of conflicts, even in campus or even when people are on different sides of issues, they tend not to break down on the, the left or the right. Okay. They break down in different ways. So it gets kind of, um, it gets it gets just really messy and, and sort of complicated. But I was thinking about this, right? You had mentioned right. when we talked before that you might answer. And one that you might ask me this, and I, and I was trying to think about how how I can answer from my experience. And, and so, so th this answer is a bit prepared and, but it, but it actually deals with something that I experienced. It was a while ago. I think it was, I didn't actually look up where this was from, I, but I'm almost a hundred percent sure. And you guys can challenge me if I'm wrong. I think this was from president Trump's, um, um, president Trump's uh, 4th of July speech. He gave okay. a speech like at Mount, Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore yep. Yeah. And he, and he, and he said this, uh, against every law of society nature, our children are taught in school to hate their own country and to believe that the men and women who built it weren't heroes, but villains. The radical view of American history is a web of lies. All perspective is removed. Every virtue is obscured. Every motive is twisted. Every fact is distorted and every flaw is magnified until the history is purged and the record is disfigured beyond all recognition." Okay. So that's obviously an extreme, you know, point of view, right. point of view on right. like our teachers or in the in public schools, and I'll even throw myself in there as a college right. educator at a public college, even though that's not primarily what he's talking about. Right. You know, the sort of radical, you know, right. l you know, leftist critique of everything, right? right? Critical and race theory, the, et cetera, yeah, whatever. I don't know, you uh, know, uh, you know, all the sorts right. of things that are sort of like being alluded to in right. that kind of. Okay, um, I. I I kind of just think that that sort of that just that whole idea is missing the point. Um, and I thought this because I was like, wow, I think there is a sense in which he he is talking about me mm. because I ended up I I usually write about ancient literature as you know your first mm -hmm. question um, uh, was getting at, but I wrote something recently an article that's going to be coming out um, not too long on contemporary American literature, and it was on. Philip Ross, The Plot Against America, which is, oh, okay. you yeah, know. Okay, yeah, came out new series, right? HBO yeah. or something, Yeah, right? they had yeah. an HBO series. Yeah. It's about, it's sort of an alternative history 
historical novel right. about like what Lindenberg becomes the president. president. Right. He's an anti-Semite. He's right. one of this American first movement who wants to keep the mm -hmm. US out of World War II and it's written around that. And so literature is, is, is sort of intimately related to history. In order to understand literature, you, you try to place it in its various historical contexts. Right. Right. Both the context of when it was written, but also literature is not, is usually not written about the time in which it's this the 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 story of a literary text is usually not taking place in the time in which it's written. Contemporary, it's, not yeah, contemporary, it's not right. contemporary. So you also want to think about well, what was the history, right? You know, mm -hmm. the purported history. So I was just doing my business when I was teaching this class, just this freshman composition class, sort of broad, you know, introductory class on how to read literature, how to write about it, and trying to understand this just in my own mind, and. Um, you know, I, I, in doing just my own uh, research on this, I, I, I came across some um, original historical scholarship. It was by James Whitman. It was this book called Hitler's American Not Model, hmm. The U.S. and the Making of Nazi Race Law. And the Nuremberg Laws, um, these important Nazi um, anti-Semitic legislation mm. that were passed in 1935, we have all the records for their planning meetings. Hmm. This historian went through them and realized that all that the people who wrote these laws that then became approved in Nuremberg in 1935 were actually looking at American race law hmm. as a model, right? Oh, they talk about it throughout the record. They, you mean like Jim Crow, that Jim kind of thing? Jim Crow legislation, okay. how you deal with Native American populations, okay. um, anti-miscegenation legislation, no intermarriage, all these things they're talking, and they're getting into details about the subject. They're really mm. interested in it. As a basis for some Nazi thinking. Yeah, as the basis yeah. for what okay. ended up being the Nuremberg Laws. Yeah. And um, it's it's a, it oh. hasn't really, you know, people haven't taken that as seriously as they could. Some historians who've recognized that happened have sort of dismissed it, but um, mm. Whitman really took it seriously. He wrote this book trying to say, no, this is really important. This this was a central part of what they were doing. And when you see it that way, then you can see um, Roth's novel, and this is what was important about it for me. You can see Roth's novel, which refer to the Nuremberg Laws that okay. are on a particular occasion and are dealing with, with legislation that Americanized the Nuremberg, like what would ha would have happened had the Nuremberg laws or something like them been passed in America, then you get the laws and policies of this novel, I right? See. So that's what I was, that, that was my argument that it's sort of imagining hmm. that this influence had had gone not just one way from America to Nazi Germany, but hmm. then back again from hmm. Nazi Germany. So I was just sort of doing that, but it wasn't, and I taught a little bit about this mm. to my students. It never even occurred to me as I was doing this, like this mm. is anti-American right. or I hate America, or this is a sort of like, you know, subversive. It was just a really interesting and troubling. I mean, mm. obviously I hope, I hope we're mm. troubled by it, but it was mm. an interesting and troubling historical moment that helped explain a problem that I had in literature. And I think scholars sort of in some ways like journalists were looking for problems to explain and to solve, right? Like no one, people say this, right? The journalists don't write about the hundred school buses that don't catch fire, right? right? They they write about the one that does. Right. You know, you don't you don't write about all the good laws that work really well. Right. You write about the ones that are really troubling. Like right. why would it? What, what was going on? 
And so I think sometimes just that kind of focus on what's problematic, what's right. troubling, what's difficult mm. can be viewed as a, a sort of political stance. And I think often it's actually not an overtly political stance. Okay. It's just sort of baked in to the way people do the nature of do, curiosity, intellectual the na- curiosity. The nature yeah. of intellectual curiosity. Yeah. So that's sort of my thing. Mm-hmm. And now people can go, oh, there's this ideology behind it. I mean, maybe I'm not I'm not gonna you know right. get into all the weeds right. behind it. I'm just saying in my experience as someone who mm. that, that doesn't resonate as true, but also as mm. someone who can see myself as being critiqued mm. by, you know, some of that, that's sort of, I think. Mm. closer to the truth of what's happening in academia mm. than that there's some sort of left, you know. It's a conspiracy yeah, or exactly. whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right, right. Um, so as a person of faith, we didn't. I didn't say a lot about your, your background. Mm-hmm. You, you did mention a little bit about wanting to be a pastor. So that's, you know, uh, so something about your background. But as someone who's an academic, does work. But what's unique about your work, like if you were a math teacher or a, or a biology teacher, you know, other than, you know, I don't know, here and there, anecdotal conversations with students, you you don't aren't talking about your faith. There wouldn't be a reason to necessarily. Yeah. But for someone who does works in ancient texts and um, one of those ancient texts being the scriptures, I just wonder, you know, yeah. um, is it um, is it fun? Is it interesting? Are there times when you, you know, that you, you, you put, you go from putting your academic hat on to putting your, I wanted to be a pastor hat, or you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, I how is that? I would imagine students, it's like talking to a doctor. I've asked some doctor friends of mine during COVID, and this could be yeah. pre-COVID too, but, you know, do you find yourself kind of, you know, um, talking about people's, you know, lives and their troubles? And they said, absolutely. In yeah. other words, so they're, they kind of go from medical advice to, you know, personal advice or, you know, whatever you want to call it, you know, their people's minds and heart advice. And how does that work for you, if at all? Um, I end up talking to students a lot about their personal situations, usually not in the context of what I'm teaching, usually just in my personal interactions okay. with them. Right? So it's like you're, you're, you have a relationship with your students. Yeah, I have a relationship with my students. And so, um, so, you know, I think that, I think, you know, good teachers do and and right. want to draw their students out and want to help their students as much as they can. But um, um, on occasion to you in my um, classes, you know, as, I, as I mentioned, and even when I was talking, I teach all sorts of ancient literature right. in different languages, but the Bible is part of it. Right. And in Bible classes, sometimes um, either I'll have students who are themselves from... Um, you know, deeply churched backgrounds okay. or opposite students, students who have maybe um, been from backgrounds where they've been taught that religion is really an enemy, right? It's something right. hostile and something dangerous. Or then sometimes from students who've had, you know, ch- who've been burned by churches, right, right too. Um, and those students, it does surprise me how often students like that, I mean, it shouldn't be surprising, but it just just is, I guess, because um, you're never expecting, I'm never expecting classrooms to get personal, even though they do, or, you know, those sorts of interactions, because it's just not the way I'm approaching it. But they often, you know, they do, and they have questions, and they're struggling with it. Mm. And um, I'm, I think I'm actually, I'm able to help, you know, um, most of those students, you know, in a, in a, in a in a pretty good way, I feel actually pretty pretty good yeah. about that part of my job. But it's interesting yeah. going back to your your yeah. um, pastor's advice of you yeah. know 
X years ago, um, who felt you, you know, who had an intellectual curiosity, you went to get your undergraduate and you got in, in comparative literature and you ended up doing what you're doing today. Yeah. But your impulse, I mean, I'm just, I'm sort of um, listening to you and, and this is more maybe a question as much as anything. Your impulse um, to want to, um, you know, be a minister, I don't know, maybe those aren't the right words, but to to work with people about about important matters, including faith, is still in some ways being lived out, you know, in 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 a, in a different way, in your work. Yeah, I'm. I mean, I think everyone in their right that concept of calling in a particular Protestant sense is mm -hmm. something you can apply to any kind of work. Mm -hmm. um, you know, absolutely. I think maybe even beyond that, I think that. Um, I adopt, like when I teach the Bible, so this often happens with religious students who I encounter. Um, when I teach the Bible in my classes, I'm teaching it. I'm not going to sh shy away from any issues because they're controversial to a religious perspective or even because they would be controversial to, you know, something that I believe doctrinally or dogmatically, right? Mm -hmm. I'm still, I'm going to, teach the text critically and I'm going to engage with these issues. That's my job and I like right. doing it. Um, and I have found, you know, increasingly that um, I can sort of model what it looks like for someone who has convictions and who has faith to also be open to questioning them and examining them and, um, and recognizing, um, you know, the weakness of one's position and certain, certain points and even being willing to change it or whatever. Um, that's something that I can I can demonstrate for my students and help them to see that you you probably are even more aware of this than I am. It's the problem of sort of fundamentalism, right? Which sometimes is des described as a house of cards, right? That right. if you take one away, then everything collapses because there's no room for sort of negotiating or sort of adjusting here right. and there. Um, there's no flexibility, um, but that doesn't mean that the only way to have a genuine faith in Christ is that sort of inflexible way. It can still be real, but, you know, recognizing the complexities and the challenges and even in some places, the contradictions, right? Mm. And I think I can help students with that. And I think I, you know, I I, I often end up do helping students mm. in those situations when they come and they, and they talk to me about their struggles because they're just stressed out about the class or even before the class happens. Oh, I got to take this Bible class. I know you're going to try to convince me that this is, you know, fake or whatever. Right. And I don't know what I'm supposed to do about that. And I just want to let you know. Mm -hmm. I'll be like, well, that's not really what college is about. It's not what education is about. Right. That you're just, we're, no one's trying to convince you that you, you know, that's just, that's more like mm -hmm. propaganda and indoctrination. That's right. not education. Right. Well, Certainly not this well, class. Speaking of that, that very point, yeah. I wonder if, again, people, those of us who are not college students, which is, you know, I don't know, I'm going to say most of us, but I mean, you know, we were college to college is a, is a very short run. So maybe many of us listening to this podcast, you know, are no longer in college. And I, and I think we tend to, um, just like I may have, or some may have, um, you know, generalized about faculty political point of view, yeah. right? I can do the same thing with students. So my question is about students. When what, what do students today? So we're talking about you know, and we're we're in the middle of a strange year, but you know, the twenty uh, twenty uh, year nineteen twenty school year, moving into the next one. Do are there core questions that students have today? It's just my just a question. You know, to the degree that you 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 know this as a yeah. teacher. 
I don't mean so much about even your work, but I just mean in general. I mean, yeah. in other words, and and what do they say if there are core questions about the state of our culture? And what I mean by that is some could look at even what's happened in the last hundred days. This isn't really the point of my question, but let's just say yeah. the you know the the post George Floyd um, protest, et cetera. Many of people would say, if you pay attention, this is large, not exclusively, but largely students, largely young people. Um, you know, and this is not new. You know, we 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 all think about that as a season of life where, where you know, let's say college students, graduate students, you know, have you know find their way to some key questions. And so, I just wonder. It, it, some we some of us who are not in 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 school might just sort of generalize. But are there are there unique core questions today? Maybe you'd say no, uh, but there are. What are they from your you know uh, limited perspective? And what do they say about our moment, cultural moment. I think that, um, students, what I've noticed over the past few years about what students care about or the sort of where their questions are coming from, they seem really concerned with issues of like equity and fairness, um, and really just sort of suspicious of, of things that seem like, um, they're not, um, that don't respect that. I mean, that's what I, that's what I see even more than when I started, certainly before I would say, um, they tended to deal with issues of sexual orientation. Okay. Students would just be hypersensitive. Hmm. And I would say in a kind of good, in a way that was good in the sense of, of provoking interesting conversations okay. and talking about, um, what were different sexual mores in different times? And sometimes they just would assume that at a certain time, you know, like homosexuality wasn't an issue when in fact it might have very well been right, an issue. Like before 1950. Right, or yeah, right, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, so 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 they could be really productive conversations, right. but that really was what was where a lot of these things were coming from. Um, I'm actually really curious, frankly, to get back into the class. I see. And here... Um, you know, how are these evolving or how are people sort of taking on board what happened with George Floyd and then what happened with the, with the protests afterwards, you know, on top of, you know, COVID-19 and the inequity there. I, I, you know, I just don't know because I do know that they care a lot about mm. um, equality, okay. about, you know, just fairness even. Yeah. So on that very um, point, you mentioned, uh, cancel culture a minute ago in other words i asked mm -hmm. you a double question you, you so i want to ask you a question about that because you say what i've heard yeah. and read you know and, and cancel culture is very broad it's not just you know there's academics that are being canceled i guess if that term even makes sense i mean you know they're being they're being um pressured to yeah. fire people same with um journalism a lot of journalists have been fired it, yeah. in the last many many days even on serious um publications um obviously um you know in other um, parts of um, I, I heard just recently, just read a, a, that even the woman who was the founder of Planned Parenthood. Okay, so now this crosses over political lines. I don't know if you read this. No, I didn't. Sanger, I think her name Sanger. is, um, who is you know kind of like the George Washington of Planned Parenthood. I guess I don't. I'm just reparroting re an article I read, but um, she apparently had some. Um, is all the great work that she did. If you happen to be a Planned Parenthood supporter. Um, that she had some um, questionable, you know, these sort of racist um, um, remarks. And um, so they're, you know, kind of tearing her statue down, so yeah, to speak. Yeah. 
But I just wonder um, that the real issue I'm getting at is and even so much the memorials, which is one uh, facet of this, but really is um, First Amendment, I guess is what I hear yeah. is, is that really what we're doing here is maybe because of, maybe it's motivated, it's probably multi-motivation, uh, but maybe it's partly motivated by what you just said, equality, you know, and whether it's about African-Americans or it's about women or it's about, you know, transgender, et cetera, et cetera. But what, it's, what it seems to be doing is, um, you know, challenging free speech. That is to say, I can't give a dissenting view if I'm the, you know, editor of the New York Times. I can't give a dissenting view, which isn't even, even a conservative right. publication. Yeah. So I just wonder, is this, when, as you read about this and you think about it, is it, um, you know, uh, more smoke than fire? Is it serious? What do you think? It's, you know... I'll just, I'll be honest and I'll say when I re, when I hear some of the things in in the news about it mm -hmm. um I'm you know pretty uncomfortable with it I'm like um it seems to me that um maybe for some of the I don't know anything about the the yeah. planned parenthood Yeah right right example, that was brand new right, I just read yeah. that but um but you've um, probably heard about Tom Cotton in the New York Times. Yeah, there's some of these things. These kinds of things yeah, that were you know, I've the, heard the, the, the editor of the New York Times was fired for for, right. for putting an article in the, you know, uh, the op-ed page. I mean, yeah. there's been many like that. I know, yeah. And I, the, yeah, that one I've heard of, and and there have been a whole lot of yes, things that now wow. our people are talking about a little bit more. Yep. And each one is a little complicated and 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 um but yeah, they make me they make me uncomfortable. I mean, I think as a as a general preference. Um, um, it seems to me that, you know, it would be better to, um, um, as a general rule of thumb to, uh, debate and to show right. why, um, right. bad ideas or bad ideas or dangerous yeah. ideas or dangerous ideas, um, um, because, because then even you, you have the opportunity of, um, I can look at the, the statue yeah. and say, this is what it represents. In other words, no, I, I doubt anybody. Maybe maybe this will be changing, but you know, in the near future, I doubt anybody has even suggested that they tear down the. Maybe this is going to sound yeah. extreme, the um, the death camps in Poland, right? Which are horrible, right? Those are those are those are are are, are um, very let's call them thoughtful um, historical monuments, whatever right. you call them. Yeah, right? yeah, and people yeah. go there, whether not just historians, regular people go there. And they're about one of the most horrible chapters in history. Yeah. And um, so to a degree that, that, that you know, Dachau is a monument. Yeah. I don't know that anyone's saying tear it down. And the reason they wouldn't, if they don't, yeah. um, um, is because they don't want people to forget. Yeah. Right. So I don't know. It, I mean, that seems like- it's a an extreme point I was view. just going to say, that seems like a really provocative, yeah. like interesting yeah. statement yeah. Um, that maybe we should think of- um, um, I don't know. Are you like a suggestion like that? You know, uh, Thomas Jefferson's estate in Monticello. We should think of it more like a concentration camp with you know with that needs to be commemorated and has this historical value. But I, I don't know. Well, what I'm thinking, yeah. you know, I, I don't. I wouldn't make that one for one. I know yeah. you're having fun with it. you. Got yeah. people can't see your smile. Yeah. So I, I I wouldn't make them equivalent, and yeah. I and I'm not trying to be glib. No, I hear you. On, but what I'm saying is, let's say it's Monticello. Yeah. Let's say it's um, the Christopher Columbus. Let's say it's you know even that statue of that saint they put down in San Francisco. I can't remember the name of it. Yeah. But anyway, the point is, 
Um, or George Washington, yeah. who had slaves. Yeah. Thomas Jefferson, who had slaves. Thomas Jefferson had children with slaves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We know that now. Right, right, right. right. Um, but what I'm saying is that we can, we can, we can, we can recognize their um, contributions. Let's say in the um, in the um, in the um, freedom uh, in the documents, the Declaration of Independence, et cetera. And but have a nuanced understanding. If we also, it's not one or the other. It's right. not he's all bad or he's all good. Yeah. We can say, what does it say about the American experiment, American history, that many, not all, but perhaps many of the founding fathers, yeah. a term that we use, um, founding fathers and mothers, you know, have um, were were part of this institution called slavery, um, and that's important to know, as opposed to. You know, and some would say this, and we don't have time for this long yeah. discussion, but I mean, some would say, I've heard some people nuance and say, I'm okay with tearing down the Confederate monuments yeah, right, right, right. because the Confederacy in many right. ways has been conflated with the, you know, slavery itself. Yeah. And, um, and okay, you know, I mean, you draw the line somewhere, yeah. but um, that's just, to me, that's, that. it seems like what you said is, why not have used these, some of them, maybe, I don't know whose job it is to draw the line, but use them as an opportunity to have an intellectual, you know, thoughtful conversation about the issues, good and bad. It's, you're bringing up some interesting points. And I think, so, so for me, for instance, like, you know, I I have I would be fully supportive of any Confederate monument, you know, coming, coming down. down right? Yeah. And um and also I think that there's a there's also kind of a difference between like quote unquote tearing it down and um um and actually like making going through the process to get rid of stuff, right? And that that should just I think everyone should be okay. I, I would hope with going through the, you know, a standard, you know, right. regular Debate, process. To, right. Go to, to the city council or whatever right. you do. Yeah. Right. Some, some of the strange thing when we talk about cancel culture is it seems like sometimes that becomes assimilated to cancel culture. But that seems to me the antithesis of cancel culture right. where you have a regular process right. and you make a decision. Right. That's right. Right. That's right. So, so, um, but, but even beyond that, the, the, the more broader thing I think that you're getting at, which I, I mean, I just think that's really interesting, and I've heard other people say it, but maybe not so provocatively right, as right. as the way you you framed it. Right. But lying behind it, especially with monuments, is just a broader conversation of well, what is a monument, right? right. We have monuments in different contexts, that's right. and sometimes we have these conversations, or at least they're had in popular culture and the media, as if everyone knows what a monument is, and everyone has the same understanding of what the monument is doing, and. Therefore, it's just this sort of straightforward issue. Yeah. Whereas I think for some monuments especially, um, um, and I think really Monticello might be a, a, a great example okay. of that, right? Yep. Where it's a monument does not necessarily need to be something that just purely celebrates, right? right? We have models of monuments that mourn and, and, right. mon and that right. celebrate. And right. maybe we just need a more robust comprehension of monuments of what yeah. they do for some of these for some of these things and that might involve the different ways that you know there's mm. signaling in them and all that kind of stuff and the way they're the way they're discussed and the way they're you know whenever you go to these places a little plaques yeah. or they're you know yeah so so i don't know I, I, these are it's mm. a really it, they're they're um you know complicated issues that are sort of beyond me you asked originally though about like do I feel it's more smoke than fire? Yeah. And I think it might just be worthwhile for me to say, you know, 
Here, well, so I, I preface it. I was like, I hear these stories too, and they, they sort right. of concern me. Once again, though, in my experience, and this is, you know, maybe going to sound counterintuitive, but it just genuinely is my experience. There have been times as an academic where, um, say, students have, um, um, you know, have questioned, raised questions about something I was teaching or whatever. And, um, Far from ever feeling canceled, I've in the in in my professional sphere have always felt supported mm. by the broader population and by my administrators, administrators and right. and, and and superiors. Right. Um, I remember at one time my department chair. Um, it was pretty soon after I had gotten into Brockport, um, and um, I was teaching Bible, and he was you know hearing some stuff from students here and there, but he he scheduled a. Um, a sit down with me and a seminary professor um, from uh, Colgate Rochester Theological Seminary. He was just like, you know, I'm hearing things. I just realize I don't understand what happens in a religion classroom, a classroom where this is taught. I need to understand right. so that I can kind of respond, you know, carefully and responsibly when these sort of things come up. And we had this long conversation. That's sort of um, my experience. On the other hand, in church, sometimes when I've taught, then I've actually I've felt like I've actually felt the effects of something you would you might talk about as cancel culture. Not so much. No, here, I know exactly what you're saying. You know, yeah. But I'll teach something yeah, in yeah. a Sunday school class, and as opposed to someone right. saying, "We're hey, talking Dr. about evolution Bush, or homosexuality, right, whatever, or, or it is. whatever, some some controversial something issue. about the Bible." Hey, right. Doctor Bush, I don't understand right. that. I disagree right. with that. Right. Why are you saying that? Instead. You know, and the emails will get back to me, or the, right. someone will say, "Hey, you know, I heard this, yeah. uh, and I'll get the message." And it's, should this guy really be allowed to teach this? Yeah, no, that, I, 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 I'm, I think yeah. uh, it's not our subject yeah, today, right. but I know the church absolutely has its own version of cancel culture, and I don't mean you know, and every church is different, and yeah. I'm speaking very broadly, but in the you know the history would tell you that, right? right. We know that that's a no brainer, <laughs> right? Um, but certainly even even our individual experiences. Yeah. And I think it's born out of some of the same things, yeah. you know, fear and yeah. and maybe a, a lack of, um, you know, capacity to um, ask questions, which of course, if we got back to Jesus, he did it all the time, right. you know, give me a coin. What do you think? You yeah, know, right, yeah, yeah. So, um, but let me ask this question. We're, we're, we're um, to close our time. We can maybe make a whole nother uh, session on this, but when you... So I'll take the take us out of the academic yeah. world and just talk about the church for a minute. You know, uh, as someone who is a you know Christ follower, you me involved in a, in a church, I'm sure people have various attitudes about the church out there in the world, and I don't even know if the church is being talked about relative to the coronavirus. You know what I mean? Maybe mm -hmm. it's not. I mean, I mean, in other words, I'm not reading articles about it. You know, the church isn't doing something or is doing something as sometimes the church has a point of view, like in presidential politics, it yeah. usually becomes upright. Yeah. But um, what would, what maybe in a, in a positive note, um, what what would be the great thing to be said about the church? In other words, what should the church be doing if it's not doing it? What would be the great, um, you know, um, headline about the church in and coming out of the coronavirus that would um, be reflective of us doing what God has called us to do, or, you know, what, what, maybe what we're not doing that we could be doing, what we need to get ready for. When you think about the church sort of post or coronavirus 
you know, what's our what's 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 our best hope? What should we be doing? When um, I've found what we're doing at Browncroft, but even more broadly, the because I think mm-hmm. you mean the church more right. broadly than that, but. Right. Um, so, someone said, I think it was actually E.J. Dion, you know. Yeah, I know E.J. Yeah, Dion. Yeah. Right. I, he he Col- said, columnist, the yeah. columnist, yep. he, was, he was talking about how when this got going, how he was just uncomfortable with the concept of um, social distancing. Like He just said, let's call it something else. I see. Because in this time, we actually need to be, right. have social solidarity. We need to be right. closer to one another, right. um, even if we need to be physically distant. And, and he was making that point. I was like, ah, oh, that's interesting, clever, whatever. Right. But- the more it went on and the more I saw what was happening um, in my small group and just even what was happening with, as I saw my son Noah and his youth small group and the, what was happening with the youth ministry and just sort of thinking about the church, the church was just this powerful institution because it, when it was really having to figure out what does community look like when we can't be in one another's presence. Right. And... Um, you know, when Jesus wanted to do what he did, what he, you know, when Jesus's ministry, like the main part of his ministry really involved him gathering groups of people, a large group of people, a much smaller group of people, arguably maybe even three or four within that smaller group of people. Right. It was just, you know, communities of different levels of intensity yeah. and of intimacy and and um, living life together and doing ministry together. Mm. And I, I feel like the church can and has been and and should continue to be on this the cutting edge of trying to think through what does genuine community like that great. look like online. And I actually think there there are examples of churches that are doing mm. a pretty good job mm. of this. And I've even looked at some of some of that for my own sort of pedagogical model, not the mm. content obviously, right. but just some of the some of the um, the concepts like what is genuine community look like online okay what is it part of that's going to be involve having fun right yeah. how do you have fun in that setting right? right how do you teach that's part of what you know is going right. to, all these different things and so i don't know yeah well i appreciate that i you know we we've been talking here for a handful of months we call it track one and track two just inside language track yeah. track one is church as we've done in the past uh, track two is um is the digital church yeah but we've been talking more recently about track three and what we've come up with track three is 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 kind of the you know um, small is big. Track three is um, a, a phone conversation. Track three is maybe a, a home visit, yeah. right? I mean, you can socially distance yeah, yeah, to yeah. use that word. Yeah. You know that the problems aren't. They're not talking. They're not. They're shutting down frontier fear. They're not shutting right. down dinner with your That's neighbors. Right. Yes, it's yeah. only you. You just you have to do it if you. So track three we've been talking about is. How about old school phone calls? How about praying for people? Yeah. How about showing up at their house? How about having a small dinner party when we're out in your backyard? Whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. So, um, which goes all the way back, you know, to yeah. the more core of the core yeah. of what it means to be the church. I yeah. like what you said. Jesus does have the five thousand on the hillside, but perhaps most of his ministry is done in a small group yeah, and yeah. Uh, in with a conversation, you know, yeah. Nicodemus at night yeah. or the woman at the well or yeah. whatever the case may be. Yeah. So yeah. I, I do think that's true. Even in my own life, I, I really do feel like it's, it's an opportunity to really ask some of core questions. And, um, and some of it may be technology. We couldn't do it without technology. Yeah. 
But uh, well, anyway, Austin, thank you for the time. I really enjoyed it. And uh, we, we just scratched the surface on some big issues and I'd love to talk with you again. We'll see what happens in a, another month or three when you're back in the world of academia. I mean, you're already in it, but yeah, I mean, yeah. when, you're, when, you're, when your semester starts, love to hear more. Thank you uh, for being with us today. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you. Friends, thank you for joining us for this conversation and hope you'll join us for more to come as we continue uh, in the conversation uh, coming very soon. 